What is the meaning of life? This is a question that humanity has struggled with for thousands of years. Here at Mosaic Church, we believe that life has great meaning. We believe that the meaning of life is most profoundly discovered in the context of God's great rescue story, the gospel. The Bible reveals to us that in the beginning of our human story, our purpose was lost when we abandoned God's story for us. In God's great love and mercy, He rescues our soul and restores our created purpose, giving our lives deep, rich meaning. Yet, despite this great discovery, we often live our lives in the day-to-day -day stresses and strains without experiencing the fullness of His restored purpose. We are going to take the next few weeks to unpack what it looks like when the gospel of Jesus Christ collides with our everyday lives and begins to inform the way we should live. We are going to look at how the gospel shapes the way we think about our relationships, our stuff, and our circumstances, and how this shapes the way we live. So buckle up, Mosaic. This is life. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just me, but is that the coolest Renault has ever looked? I mean, come on, the sweet brown slacks, the cool button-up, the short sleeve. Man, I'm going to have to raid his closet one day. I think Brooke really dressed him well for that one. It felt like he was riding in on his Tony Hawk skateboard, gave us that message, said, hey, Brady, tell him about the meaning of life. I'm going to go hit the half pipe. I don't know, that's, that's the way that I felt. But you know, as I was thinking about the meaning of life, I felt very ill-equipped, so I thought I might read some quotes to you from some people that may or may not be wise. You can judge for yourselves. Uh, Joseph Campbell said, life has no meaning. Each of us have meaning and we bring it to life. Raymond E. Face said, life is problems, living is solving problems. I can relate to that. Ahmet Ray said, it doesn't matter how long you spend on this earth, how much money you have gathered, or how much attention you have received. It is the amount of positive vibration you have radiated in life that matters. Is that, is that positive? Or is, that ne is that negative vibration? I don't know. It's something. Um, uh, James Frey says, what is the meaning of life? Whatever you want it to be. And Michael Springer said, trying to find the meaning of life is harder than trying to capture lightning in a bottle and probably le best left to the professionals. Now, I have yet to successfully capture lightning in a bottle, and I don't know if I would consider myself a professional. Uh, so so I, I don't know. When I was thinking about the meaning of life, okay, the purpose of life, uh, for some reason I thought about death. And when someone dies, maybe this is just me, but it feels like everyone immediately became closer to them in life. Like everyone is always talking about how close they were to this person, how much they knew this person, how many times they hung out with this person, how much this person meant to them. And then at a funeral, the people that talk about this person are the people that knew them, the people that walked with them in life, the people that experienced great emotional connection with them. I feel like a gigantic piece of the meaning of life is relationship with people. At least that's what I see at the end of someone's life. Now, if that's uh, true, then I think I would want to know, what does the Bible have to say about relationships? There's a guy named Paul. We've been talking about him a lot in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians. Uh, but Paul typically had a formula when he wrote letters. He would talk about God and how great and amazing God is. He would talk about what God has done. He would say, now, in light of this, 
This is how we do life. This is how we find meaning and fulfillment and purpose in life. So in Romans, uh, he says this way. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Bless those who persecute you. Well, that's easy. Live in harmony with one another. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, even in the speed limit, and even if you didn't vote for them. I may have added that. Uh, Do not quarrel over your opinions. Man, we, we don't do that well. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Uh, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Uh, In Ephesians, he continues on, uh, submit yourselves one to another. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents. Uh, Parents, fathers, do not uh, provoke your children to anger. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Peter kind of got into the same gig. He's talked about God, how amazing he was, what he did. And he said, okay, now here's how we relate to people. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil or praise those who do good. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, in a perfect utopian society, that sounds pretty great, right? Because it's easy to be patient with someone who's being kind to you. And, and it's easy to submit to someone who is dying to themselves for you. It's it's easy to forgive when the person is humbling themselves and asking for forgiveness, right? But I don't know about you, but that's not the world I live in. I live in a world that is broken, a world that is, is living under the weight of sin and death and it's affected every area. So how in the world am I supposed to submit and serve and sacrifice and give and forgive when, when, when people aren't doing that in return? How do I love my wife when she doesn't love me in return? How do I forgive someone when they're not being gracious, when they're not asking for forgiveness? How do I do this when people are mean to me? How do I not be mean back to them? It, it really seems impossible, and, and really, it sounds a lot like sa- slavery to me. It, sacrifice, submit, serve. What's going on here? I mean, this this is what Paul is saying the meaning of life is. There was a guy named Solomon who lived about 3,000 years ago. And Solomon looked at life like a scientist. And he said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to step back. I'm going to look at life. I've got these, these needs. I've got physical needs. I've got emotional needs. I have spiritual needs. I have intellectual needs. I need to be validated. I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. So I have these needs, right? I've got all these needs. And so I'm going to look at life and I'm going to say, what does life have to offer me? What, what, what can life do for me when it comes to my relationship with my stuff? When it comes to my relationship with people, when it comes to my relationship with my circumstances, what, what, what can I get from this? How can I get these needs met? 
And so, for instance, he took people and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I know that, that people will say, you know what? You can't find happiness in people. But I tell you what, those people don't really know because they haven't gone to the greatest extent. They don't have the greatest people. They don't have the, the wealthiest people, the smartest people, the wisest people, the most popular people, the most beautiful people. They don't have these people in their life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the greatest people there are to surround me, the intellectual people, the, the, the people that, are, uh, that have a lot of wealth, the people that have a lot of respect, the people that have a lot of wisdom. I'm going to surround surround myself with them. I'm going to surround myself with talented people, with artists, and with musicians, with, with funny people. This is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to get a bunch of slaves, a bunch of people that, whose sole purpose in life is to serve me, is to wait on me hand and foot and fulfill my every need. I'm going to, I'm going to have uh, 300 concubines so that, so that any uh, sexual desire that I have can be filled whenever I want it. Uh, I want 1,400 mother-in-laws, so I'm going to get 700 wives. And so that's what he did. And I, I don't know about you, I think one mother-in-law is the perfect number because I wouldn't want to have to split all the love that I have for my mother-in-law between more than one. But that's not how Solomon did it, okay? So, so this is what Solomon did. Basically, he was looking at people as objects that had uh, different different attributes that, that had different values. And he said, I'm going to get the people that have the best attributes and the most valuable attributes, and I'm going to surround myself with them to see if there's anything there. Now, I feel like that sounds a little bit harsh. It sounds a little cold. Like, that's not really how I do it. But as I've thought about it, as I've prayed about it, as I've looked at my life, I think, this is actually the way that we do relationships. We have needs. We have the need to be validated, have our emotions validated, to have our, our pride padded. We have the need to have our physical urges satisfied. We, we want to be, have our status upped. And so we treat people like objects to be possessed for our good, for our satisfaction, to fill our needs, to fill the void inside. And, and, and we see this in every area of relationship. I think about with parents. Uh, as a child, I manipulated my parents because I saw my parents as a means to an end, as a means to get me what I wanted. So a lot of times I would, I would pin my father against my mother, right? I'd say, hey, dad, here's what mom said. Can I do this? Mom said I can do this. Or I'd go to my mom, hey, dad said this. Uh, I knew that there were, there were certain parents uh, to ask certain questions too. So for instance... When I wanted to go see a movie, I'd go ask my mom because my dad would say no. I mean, he was against all forms of media, okay? I mean, he was, you know, James Dobson listened to it every day. And no, no movies, okay? So if I wanted to see a movie, I'd go ask my mom. Now, if my sisters wanted to buy something, they would go talk to my dad. And they knew exactly where he was. He was wrapped around their little finger. And so, and so if they wanted to go shopping, they'd go talk to my dad, but not to my mom. I remember if we as kids wanted something together as a conglomerate, we'd always ask my youngest brother, Cooper, uh, to go ask because he was the pet. I mean, everybody loved him. Uh, he could get anything that he wanted. You see, we, we knew, we knew how to work the system, how to manipulate our parents, not because we, we, we loved them and valued them, but because we wanted to get something from them. We wanted to get something out of them. And it works the other way. Parents with children. 
How often are our parents, uh, because of you know, the, the needs that they have, they want to relive their lives through their children. You see this a lot in, in sports and uh, sporting events. You have the parents that are just going crazy nuts at the referees, at their kids when they fail, because they're trying to relive their glory days through their kids. A lot of parents give with strings attached. I know there are probably none of them in here, but there are some parents that give with strings attached. I had a roommate in college who, um, whose dad was a, a dentist, and, and he sent uh, him to school, uh, and he was doing the pre-med thing. And after about a year, year and a half, he decided, okay, the pre-med thing is not for me. This is, it's too difficult. It's not really what I enjoy. It's not really what I want to do. And so he decided, okay, I want to be an engineer. And so he planned out his next three and a half years of college and grad school and, and, and got all the statistics about, you know, jobs and, and pay and all this stuff. And he presented it before his dad saying, hey, dad, this is what I want to do. And his dad said, you can't leave college till I can call you doctor. And I said, why don't you just change your name to doctor? I don't know, he didn't listen to me, so I don't know if it would have worked or not. But, but they give with strings attached a lot of times. A lot of times parents parent differently in private than they do in public. Right? In private, it's about the rules and the regulations. In public, it's about how bad you're embarrassing me. Right? Because if you're out of line a little bit, it's okay. I don't want to punish you in public because that's going to embarrass me. But if you start misrepresenting me or embarrassing me, a lot of times, you know, we'll bring down the hammer of Thor. And this is because we have all these needs that need to be met and we try to get them met in other people. What about with my spouse, with my wife? How often do I, do I approach my wife after having a difficult day, a frustrating conversation, uh, and, and I just want to get my emotions validated? I want her to say, yes, you were right. That person was a dum-dum. You see, this, these are the things that I want to get from my wife. I go to her to get stuff from her, to pad my ego. The friends that we surround ourselves with. You know, we, we get people around us that can bless us, that can help us, that can encourage us, that can accept us. We, we want to be around people that are enjoyable, people that are funny. We want to be, be around uh, people that can up our status. This is the reason why we can't commit to anything. Uh, on Facebook now, I don't know if you know this, at an event, there's a yes, no, and a maybe button. Because we don't want to say yes or no, because what if something better comes along? And we don't want to say no, because what if that's the best thing to come along? Then I really want to go. It's all about what the best thing is for me right now. We look at people as objects to possess, to satisfy our needs, to fill our needs, to give us acceptance, uh, to, to give us a bunch of likes on Facebook or whatever it is, to feel validated. Because we have these needs and we look around, we have these people that we think can meet our needs. But how does it work out? It doesn't work out real well. I, mean, I can tell you from experience with my wife that every time I've come to her needy to fill my needs, to satisfy me, to, to do stuff for me, it never works out well. Not because my wife isn't amazing. She is. She's sweet. She's loving. She's kind. And, and when, when I approach her, she always wants to try uh, and encourage me. She always wants to be there for me. But the problem is, is I'm asking her to be something that she was never meant to be. I'm asking her to fill a void that she was never meant to fill. And so I always walk away frustrated. 
This happens with our friends, the ways that we feel so left out and so hurt when they're, they're not grateful or, or they don't invite us places or, or whatever it is. If you look at the way, if you honestly look at the way that you interact with your friends and your family members, the people that you surround yourself with, you'll realize how selfishly you approach your relationships and how it doesn't really work out. Solomon said, after he tried this, he said in Ecclesiastes, uh, I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity, a striving after the wind. It's like chasing the wind, trying to get people to fill these voids. It's like chasing the wind. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch up to it. It will never do what you need it to do. It's like we've got this problem inside and, 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 and it's causing pain and we're trying to fix it with morphine. Right, you're just trying to fix it with painkiller. Painkiller doesn't fix anything. It, it numbs the pain, but it doesn't fix the problem. There's a deeper problem, a deeper issue going on. And so let's look at God's way. Let's look at the way that God has laid it out, the way that God has set it up. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Odds are it's on page 1. Genesis chapter 1, page 1. It says, in the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so if God created the heavens and the earth, who owns everything? God. I would have also accepted Jesus for that answer. Um, God owns everything. He created it. Okay, there is this being, this supernatural being who is infinitely power, powerful, who is all everywhere, all the time. Okay, this, this being who is amazing, infinite, awesome, gigantic, and he spoke and the universe came into being. The, the earth, the stars, the galaxies, us, plants, animals, he spoke us into existence. So he owns everything. Everything is his. Everything is his. We look at, at people as ours. We look at stuff as ours. We look at our life as ours. We should never, ever use the word mine, ever. Anytime you use the word mine, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. My sister, when she was raising her kids, she didn't like the word mine, and so she told them, taught them to use the possessive, possessive form of their name. Like, I would say, this is Brady's Bible, or these are, uh, uh, this is Brady's shirt, or, or Renault is Brady's pastor. But even that, it's not mine. It's not mine. Everything is God's. Okay, and here's what, we, what he did in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us create man, and this is the ambiguous word for humanity, let us create humanity in our image. After our likeness. Okay, there's some us's and some ours. Here's what's going on. The God of the universe is a triune God. He's Trinity, meaning he's Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, but one God. Three persons, but one God. And so God says, let us, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us create humanity in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, the heavens, over the livestock, and over all, over, <clears throat> over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
so the God of the universe is this mighty, majestic God. He creates humanity. And he says, I want you to be in my image. And part of the way that we image God is in the command that he gives us. He says, I want you to rule over the earth, not as owners, not as people that possess it, but as managers, as stewards, as caretakers. I want you to take care of my earth. I want you to take care of my creatures. I want you to take care of my plants. I want you to take care of my humans, one another. I want you to have the most amazing purpose to image me to the world, to demonstrate me to people, to display me to people. Now, how did, how do we do that? How did Jesus display himself or display God to the world? He submitted, he sacrificed, he served, he was patient, he was kind, he was forgiving. This is the way that Jesus lived his life, the way that Paul talked about in all those letters and the way Peter talked about in his letters. He was submissive and sacrificial. He was submitting his life to us, the God of the universe. And now God said, I want you to image me to one another. So you will now demonstrate the life that I have lived for you to one another. And another way that we image God is this. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 7, it talks a little bit more about the way that God created humanity. When God created everything in Genesis chapter 1, he spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land, and there was land. Uh, let there be plants, and there was plants. Uh, let there be animals, and there was animals. Uh, and then, with humanity, it says in, in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The picture that we see here is, is a potter sitting at, at a potter's wheel, throwing a, 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 a clay pot together with great care and great love, great mastery and great creativeness, just forming the human. God formed the human with great love and care and compassion. And then what did he do? He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. From the beginning, we were created in the image of God with God animating our lives, God filling us with life, God giving us life, God giving us fulfillment, God giving us satisfaction, God giving us purpose. David talks about this in the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 16, if you want to turn there, it's on page 190. Psalm chapter 16, David, uh, the great king of Israel, is writing about God. And he says, the Lord, in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's talking about the tribe of Levi. Back when God led the Israelites into the promised land, he gave them each an inheritance. Each of the 12 tribes got an inheritance. They got an inheritance of land. And the land was very precious to the Israelites. So every tribe got a portion of land except the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi didn't get any land. God said that I will be their portion. I will be their inheritance and David says, just like the tribe of Levi, Levi, 
You, God, you are my chosen portion. You are my inheritance, a beautiful inheritance. He goes on in verse 11, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul echoes this sentiment in in Philippians chapter 4. He says, listen up everyone, I know the secret to contentment. I found the secret to contentment. And it doesn't matter what circumstance I'm in. It doesn't matter if I have food or if I don't. If it's an easy circumstance or if it's a difficult circumstance. It doesn't matter if I have friends and family or I don't. It's not about this stuff. Contentment is not about this. Contentment is finding strength in Jesus. Finding fulfillment in Jesus. I can do all things through Christ. All things through Jesus who gives me strength. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. Isaiah says, hey, when I'm in the desert, when I'm in a weary desert and there's nothing around, nothing, I have nothing, I am fully satisfied in God. Psalm 37, David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We were created to find fulfillment and satisfaction and and purpose in God. David says, delight in him and you will be satisfied. God loves you and he he is giving himself to you fully. So when you delight yourself in God, you will be satisfied. Jesus said as in John He says, I am the well of living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. You will be full. You will be satisfied. You will be complete, lacking nothing in me. When I think about the things that we are commanded to do, the way that we're commanded to do relationships by serving and sacrificing and submitting and forgiving and being patient and being kind, when I look at that, I realize that it is completely impossible when I come to the table needy, when I approach you needy, when, when I have needs that need to be met, when I wake up in the morning and I've got all these needs, I need to be validated, I need to be accepted. I cannot live out my God-given, God-redeemed purpose by submitting to you when I've got needs that need to be met. Because I want to, I'm going to take from you, and I'm going to take from you, and I'm going to get it filled here, I'm going to get validation here, I'm going to get acceptance here, I'm going to get likes on Facebook here to validate me, to fulfill me. And so I can't submit and serve and sacrifice you when I don't have my needs met. But when I delight myself in God, He fills me. When I am satisfied in God, then I can live out the most epic purpose of imaging God to all of you. To everyone in this world. When I am satisfied in Him first, I am set free to live out this epic purpose that God has given us. Here's some examples that I've seen uh, with people that I know. There's this couple, uh, and, and they, they, they had uh, some friends that they wanted to bless and they wanted to encourage. So they said, let's have a party. And so they decorated, and they made a lot of food, and they just made it this, this awesome party for all these people. And no one showed up. Not one person showed up. And at first, they were really hurt. 
And, and they were talking, and they had this discussion, and they realized that the reason they were hurt was because there were selfish motives. They wanted, they wanted people to validate them. They wanted people to accept them. But they said, if, if, our, if our goal really is to bless other people, to encourage other people, then people not coming to our party hasn't thwarted that. It hasn't stopped that. So they went out to Target. They went out to a bunch of different stores and they got uh, unique intentional gifts for each of the people that didn't come and they went and placed them on their doorstep anonymously because they wanted to bless people. And, and, and they, they said that, that it was so much more rewarding, so much more fulfilling doing that than had people come to their party. There's this other couple and they were, they were newlyweds. They were, they were married. They were just a, just a couple months. And Valentine's Day came up. And now Valentine's Day for, for brand new couples can be a really uh, neat time uh, to celebrate each other and celebrate your love and, and to have, you know, a great, fun, romantic night. But his mom, his mom didn't have anyone to be with for that Valentine's Day. It was the groom's mom didn't have anyone to be with for Valentine's Day. I think her husband was uh, on vacation, uh, not vacation, but like traveling for work or something. And, uh, and so they decided to take her out for dinner and to spend the entire evening with her, encouraging her and, and, and inspiring her and loving her and thanking her for all the things that she had done. And it was amazing for them. In fact, it was so amazing for them that every Valentine's Day since has been a, a, a goal for them to help bless single people. Because here's the thing, let's, let's be honest, Valentine's Day is hands down the worst uh, holiday ever, right? The worst holiday ever. If you're a couple, the, the expectations are set so high that no one can, you know, transcend those. That's impossible. And if you're single, th th this holiday tells you, oh, you're alone. Nobody loves you. Nobody likes you. I mean, we laugh, but it's so true. How many times on Valentine's Day, if you didn't have someone, did you feel alone? Did you feel sad? Did you feel depressed? I know I have. And so they said, from now on, we're going to make Valentine's Day about single people. And so they invite single people to their home, and they do these celebrations for single people. And they said that it's just so fulfilling. It's so much better than being selfish and doing it for ourselves. It's so much more uh, epic. It's, it's full of joy and life. My wife and I have gotten to do this really neat thing uh, the past four years since we moved down here. I am the, the pastor of our Disney campus. Uh, Mosaic has a number of campuses, and, and one is for Disney cast members specifically. And the thing about Disney cast members, we've realized, is that they come to work at Disney from all over America. And so they don't really have homes here. They don't have family here. And when it comes time for the holidays, it's an interesting situation because holidays are great when you can celebrate with family, when you can enjoy traditions with family. But when you don't have any family during the holidays, it can be really sad and really lonely. And because my wife is so amazing and, and she just loves people so well, so intentionally, she said, let's not go home for Thanksgiving anymore. Let's not go hang out with our families anymore. And said, let's stay here and let's open our home for these cast members that don't have homes, that don't have family. And let's celebrate with them and give them a place to enjoy the holidays together. And I tell you what, it's one of my favorite things that we get to do all year long. It really is. It's so life-giving to, to, to live for someone other than myself, to live for a purpose greater than myself. 
There was a garage sale that happened this weekend, yesterday morning. Uh, a bunch of people got together because there was this girl uh, who wanted to go to Cambodia. She wanted to go to Cambodia on a mission trip that Mosaic has taken, and there was a lot of money that she had to raise, and she was, uh, she was struggling to raise it. And so these people said, well, we don't have a lot of money, but what we can do is we can go through our homes and find stuff that we don't need, because I guarantee we have a lot of stuff we don't need, and let's have a garage sale. So they pulled all their stuff together, and they had this garage sale yesterday to raise money for this girl. Now, there was this other couple. They were also having a garage sale. They didn't know about this. You know, they, they, they had stuff they didn't need and they had money that they probably needed to make. And halfway through their garage sale, they heard about this garage sale going on uh, on the other side of town. And so they shut down their garage sale. They took all of the stuff they hadn't sold and they brought it and donated it to this other garage sale. And then they took all the money they had made and they gave it to this girl. And they found life in being filled and satisfied in God so that you can live out your God-redeemed, God-restored, God-created purpose of being Him to the world. I imagine there are so many of us here today that are living in bondage, that are living in slavery to people's opinions and people's invitations and people's likes on Facebook and, and, and all these things because we need to get, we, we have these needs, we have these wants, we have these desires and we've got to get them filled somewhere. But, and, and so we try and find it in other people and we find ourselves completely enslaved, completely imprisoned. And I want you to know that God wants to set you free. When we live this way, we get to demonstrate God more fully because God is community. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is always glorifying the Son. The Son is always submitting to and glorifying the Father. The Spirit is always pointing to the Son and pointing to the Father. It's this perfect example of love and unity and lifting up the other person. And when we live this way, we represent God more perfectly. Because people get to see a loving, giving, sacrificing community that images God. And when we do this, we get to experience God more fully. There was a guy who lived about 2,500 years ago. His name was Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet of the Lord. And God said, Hosea, I want to use your life to demonstrate my love for my people. You see, I have loved my people and they have rejected me. And then I have loved them and pursued them and they rejected me. And I loved them and pursued them and they rejected me. And I want to use your life to demonstrate my love for Israel. Now at first that sounds pretty great. It sounds pretty nice. I, you know, that, that's awesome. And he says, so Jose, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a girl that is a prostitute. I want you to take her into your home. I want you to love her. And I want you to have kids with her. Now FYI, she's going to leave you but I want you to go back and get her and I want you to bring her back into your home and I want you to love her and I want you to pursue her heart. I don't know if you've ever been involved with friends that have gone through an affair. One of the spouses cheating. But it is a, a difficult thing to go through. I've had close friends that have had to go through this. And it is heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. The devastation that comes. The, the sadness that comes. The despair that comes. 
And I tell you what, the way that I used to look at Hosea was I pitied Hosea. Can you imagine being Hosea and God asking you to do this? Well, God, that doesn't sound very fun. That doesn't sound very great. That sounds awful. But I tell you what, as I've studied this, as I've read through this, as I've prayed through this, I guarantee that if Hosea could see us now in the way that we lived, viewing people as objects to own, to possess, to satisfy us, being completely enslaved to their opinions and their acceptance, I guarantee he would pity us. That he would say, look at my life. I got to be satisfied in God. There is no one else you can be satisfied in. People will not satisfy you. Your spouse will not satisfy you. Only God will bring you great satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy. And I got the most amazing opportunity to live a life that looked like God for Israel. My life demonstrated the great love of God for his people over and over and over. In fact, people look at my story for for generations to come, for thousands of years. They look back at my story and they 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 are shown the life of God. And this is what we get to do. We have the opportunity, God has given us this purpose of the created purpose to image God to the world so that when people look at us, they see Jesus. When people look at us, they see Jesus as he sacrificed, as he submitted, as he served, as he gave his life, as he forgave, as he was kind, as he was gentle. When people look at us, they get the opportunity to see Jesus. (coughs) So often... We look at this life that we're called to, and it seems like slavery to submit, to sacrifice, to serve. It sounds like slavery. It feels from the outside like slavery. And it seems like freedom for us to get to use people. But it's completely the opposite. It's completely the opposite. When we try to get our satisfaction from people, we are enslaved. But when we find our fulfillment, when we find our joy, when we find our satisfaction in God, we are actually set free to live the most amazing, epic life that demonstrates the gospel that will echo into eternity, that will affect lives and bringing them into the kingdom of God so that they can spend an eternity with God. This is what our God has done. Our God is so amazing. He's so beautiful that he created us to be filled in him. And he created us to live out a life that would demonstrate him, that would affect other lives for eternity. This is what we get to do. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. What a beautiful God you are. Thank you so much for the way that you created us with such care with such creativity, with such great love. Thank you that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Thank you that you breathe the breath of life into our bodies. Lord, I pray that you would set us free from the slavery of pleasing people, of trying to get people to fill us. Lord, I pray that we would find our hope find our satisfaction, find our fulfillment in you and only in you that we might experience true joy in you. And I pray that you'd give us the great courage 
to live this life, this sacrificial, submissive, serving life, loving others, encouraging others, challenging and inspiring others towards you. Help us to live a life that will echo into eternity. Thank you so much for who you are and the way that you created us. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ.